Hey there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for Thursday, October 29th. Coming up, we'll talk to a doctor about the daily COVID numbers in the province. Plus, not one, not two, but three different City of Toronto councillors about bike lanes possible on Yonge Street. As well, we'll hear from our wellness expert about Halloween candy. You know, that's all coming up on the podcast right now. Okay, where exactly are we when it comes to COVID and the second wave in this province? We're now expecting COVID modeling from the province at 3 this afternoon. But for a bit of a a preview, let's welcome in Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. She joins us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Gorfinkel, nice to speak with you as always. Many thanks for having me, Jeff. Okay, uh, we're hearing at least the Premier is giving us a bit of a preview, saying that good news is coming and that the numbers are heading in the right direction downward. But we've got a caseload in the province today of 934, which is fairly close to our record daily high of just over 1,000, which we hit just this past weekend. So do you believe it? Do you think we're heading in the right direction? Well, clearly there's a mismatch going on between the actual numbers that we're seeing out there The numbers that we're seeing in terms of people even concern, like the numbers getting tested, everything is higher than what he's reflecting. So I'm not sure exactly where that comment is coming from and on what facts it's based on. Um, That said, we are still potentially under-testing. We're below our capacity. We're at 36,000 tests a day in the province, and we have the capacity for 45,000 tests. So we welcome rapid testing when that comes, because I think a lot of people have hesitation just around getting tested. Yeah, listen, I raised that similar concern at the beginning of the hour here. You're right. We're just over 35,000 tests, and of course the goal is 50,000 per day, and we're still getting these numbers over 900, close to 1,000. So logic would dictate if we were doing more testing, those numbers would even be higher. So do we even know, although the numbers are fairly high, if they're accurate numbers. Well, this is it. We know they're underestimates. We know that far more people are dying than are reported. What we have reported when we hear those over 10,000 deaths, unfortunate deaths now in Canada, reflects not what's actually out there, but what's happened in hospital settings, in settings that we know the person has died from COVID-19. But unfortunately, there have been many other deaths that go unreported, deaths at home, deaths in long-term care, deaths in retirement homes, deaths with other, you know, other chronic conditions, and it may even be ascribed to those other chronic conditions. But it, that, that I find actually quite concerning. But how Ontario is doing as a whole, maybe this is where um, Premier Ford is coming from, because if you consider that, you know, in Ontario we have 31% of, the, of all the deaths in Canada from COVID-19. And yet we represent 38% of the population. We're actually doing pretty well from that perspective so far. Let's contrast that for a moment to what's going on in Quebec. Quebec has 22% of Canada's population, and yet it accounts for 62% of the deaths in Canada from COVID-19. Well, you know, the old saying is statistics, they can tell you anything uh, you want them to, uh, right? And uh, you can find, you know, maybe a a silver lining or uh, a reason for your argument if you just search uh, hard enough when it comes to stats. Having said that, what will you be, uh, obviously you're going to be listening intently as we all will at three o'clock to uh, hear the modeling 
And uh, the reasoning why, uh, again, there seems to be this disconnect between where we are right now and where the province believes we're going and that it's good news and the numbers are going to get better. What is it you're going to be looking for or looking to hear specifically at 3 o'clock, Doctor? Everything I'm going to say is totally predictable. One, the surgical approach. Well, let's hope that translates into smarter testing, more widely available testing, testing at the you know at many more points so that patients can more readily access it. Let's hope that there's better contact tracing. Let's hope that the the, the kind of testing that's available, especially to healthcare providers, is expanded. I'm concerned that healthcare providers, you know, we know that it, it represents between 10 and 20 percent of the burden of illness that's out there from COVID-19. When I say illness, by that I actually mean spread as well. So by surgical approach, it's the translation in other countries. We've honed in on the areas where the hotspots are, we're doing better contact tracing, we're expanding the tests available, and we're getting that um, that that time that it takes to know the test result down to an absolute minimum. Yeah, is that what surgical testing, sorry, uh, doctor, means to you? Because we were just wondering a lot about that, uh, as the premier mentioned that a couple of times in his daily uh, press conference, what exactly is a surgical approach? And I was wondering whether it was, you know, say in Toronto, can we keep certain uh, areas that have been disproportionately affected by uh, COVID under lockdown and maybe open up businesses on the other side of town? Or is it looking at certain industries and saying that, you know what, the restaurant business is still too risky, but yeah, gyms can reopen, that sort of thing? I think that's another potential area that we could improve on, because we know the socioeconomic determinants of health. Who has COVID hit the hardest? Again and again, it's the lower socioeconomic groups. Why? Because they're living in closer contact with one another. It's harder for that particular population to access care. It's harder for them to take off work necessarily. It's harder for them to keep their kids away from other kids. They have to have those other services. So I think that that may be part of the surgical approach. We'll have to see what happens at 3 o'clock. Yeah, with the caseload today at just over uh, 900, if we get word that, yes, we are trending in the right direction, but uh, the modeling shows that maybe we're only going down to, I don't know, 600 or 500 uh, cases, that's certainly less than 900 or 1,000, but should we consider that, I don't know, a victory? Well, what you know, what's concerning is that even though the numbers in hospitals, the numbers of deaths, you know, we look to those numbers to tell us, okay, because those numbers are going to lag behind, right, by two weeks. Um, it's concerning that young people specifically represent very real risks to older individuals, and older individuals need to understand that concept of physical distancing from younger individuals, even when those younger individuals are within their said circle. You know, masking within that the you know if somebody if a young person comes home ideally that person actually would be wearing a mask in front of that older individual who may be at risk the individual over 60 the individual who has chronic conditions because that young individual has a 40 percent likelihood of being asymptomatic so i'm hoping that that's also going to be integrated in part of the surgical approach Kids aren't going back to school. They have to. And, you know, fine, even if we open a few restaurants or close them and we have a surgical approach, when young people are faced with older people who are at risk, masking is a must.
masking is a must in areas that are enclosed public spaces where large numbers of people congregate. Yes, I'm talking about the pharmacy. Yes, I'm talking about the supermarket. And I, and I still am concerned when I walk in my local supermarket and I see that mask. And I'm not kidding, Jeff. You've seen this, too. It's ridiculous. People are wearing the mask on the back of their heads. <laughs> yeah. That wrong side, right? Yeah. Or that or not over their nose. Uh, absolutely. Uh, just finally, Dr. Gorfinkel, do you think that uh, restrictions need to stay in place in hot spots? Uh, it's a week tomorrow, next Friday, that a decision has to be made in several uh, locations uh, in the province whether to uh, go back to stage three or uh, keep restrictions uh, in place. Is now, right now, not the time to kind of let our foot off the uh, gas? Do we do so at our own peril, do you think? We do so very much at our own peril. You know, I think that the the measures that we have in place, there is no question that it has had a profound impact on our keeping our numbers low. Compared to the U.S., we have one-fifth of the death rate. People are dying five times the rate in the United States than they are here, despite our low number of hospital beds per, patient, per population. That tells you something. We're good at getting testing. We're good at wearing masks. We're good at considering ourselves to be a community. We care enough about our fellow man that we'll put on the mask when we're in that public open space. We'll use the hand sanitizer. We'll socially distance. All right, Dr. Gorfinkel, appreciate the uh, time as always, and I know uh, you'll be watching and listening as we all will at uh, 3 o'clock this afternoon for the modeling numbers, but uh, appreciate the uh, talk and the preview. Many thanks to you, Jeff. Be well. There's Dr. Iris Gorfinkel with us. Toronto City Council, uh, they have approved a plan that could see the installation of protected bike lanes on a six-kilometer stretch of Young Street, spanning most of uh, Midtown Toronto, and all of this looks like it's going to happen by uh, next summer. The bike lanes on Young Street will stretch from Blur to Lawrence Avenue. And earlier today, here on Global News Radio, our Kelly Cotrera talked to City Councilor Mike Cole about the plan. Have a listen. The acceleration is resulting from the pandemic uh, where we uh, did the Cafe TO, where we took away some uh, uh, car lanes to allow restaurants uh, to have uh, patios on the uh, inside uh, curb lane. Uh, so, and this is going to continue to look at uh, continuing that because it looks like this pandemic ain't going anywhere. Uh, so we want to continue to look at those uh, curb lane patios and then part of it look at ways of incorporating these bike lanes uh, uh, to uh, essentially calm traffic down to get people to stop and shop and just to make our streets a bit uh, slower and safer. Uh, so we're looking at the feasibility of doing it on Young Street and see if it works. Uh, we're going to do uh, studies for the next uh, six months to a year, and we're going to look at possible, if it doesn't seem to work on Young, we'll look at alternative routes that might uh, be, because the reality is people are not going all downtown anymore because there's a lot more working from home because of COVID. Yep. They're, they're doing more local commuting and a lot of people don't want to get on crowded buses or on uh, the subway. So the reality is uh, you can't find a bike in Toronto. So people are, uh, you know, going to work now, shopping, traveling more on their bicycles. So we, the reality is we have to make it safe for people on their uh, bikes right now. It is not because of the excessive speed of cars, and we're trying to make 
a situation where they have at least a lane where they could travel mm-hmm. more safely. All right. Well, the lanes that they pick in in Vancouver are on the parallel side street. The very next street over is what they pick in Vancouver. And I would uh, lobby that the government should, the council should start looking at this because it's a great plan. And if, if Vancouver, Vancouver is the most bike friendly place I've ever lived because it shouldn't be about penalizing the uh, the driver in the city of Toronto. It should be about making the roads safe for everyone to use. We are not uh, penalizing drivers. We're just trying to make it safer for pedestrians, cyclists, and for drivers, because right now there's too much speeding, uh, too many instances of uh, no enforcement of speed limits, so we're just trying to slow things down a bit. All right, that is City Councillor Michael Cole on the radio station earlier today with his argument for these bike lanes on Young Street. Now, listening in and phoning in and wanting to react during the Kelly Contreras show was another City Councillor, Stephen Holliday, and here's what Mr. Holiday had to say. Okay, so how do you respond to his comments? And what really got you uh, so agitated that you decided to reach out to Chris and say, hey, I'm listening to this and I'd like to have my say? Well, at council, we had a good old-fashioned street fight yesterday about bike lanes like we always do. But, you know, the councillor spun this that the three of us that voted against it, you know, wanted cars to go faster or something, which is nothing further than the truth. A lot of people that drive out there know that when you introduce congestion on purpose, when you add a bottleneck, you frustrate drivers. And maybe that's what leads to people doing risky things like driving too fast or blowing stop signs. I don't think that was very fair. Um, you know, I, I complained about this at council. This is council doing another sneak attack uh, during COVID. They walked on a motion onto the floor and tried to slip this through unnoticed. And uh, boy, okay, oh boy, so I this wasn't it. planned. You had no idea that this bike lane on Young Street from Bloor to Lawrence was was even in the works as far as planning goes. In the, there's a line item in our broader city plan for cycling to study this over a number of years and this was not a top priority and suddenly this was was walked in as a temporary measure in covid and then a permanent measure long over the long term and i don't think people have really had a chance to react to it Mm. i wonder if people would is there any worry at all that people would hold the city responsible if there is an accident where a bike lane uh, a cyclist is hit by one of those large vehicles uh, as far as, uh, you know, like let's just use the example of a dump truck that I used while I was talking like, talking to Councillor Cole. Uh, hits a cyclist and uh, it results in a fatality. If that's the case and you guys went ahead, could you be liable for putting in bike lanes when you knew that there was development going on in the area? It, it might be an irresponsible move. Well, you know, let the engineers sort out how you design a bike lane if indeed these things are finalized and put in. And the litmus test at council was pretty clear that they'll go in without too much effort. But I like what you said earlier is that when you cycled, I think like a lot of sensible cyclists, you avoid these really congested areas and you take the parallel streets that are nearby. You can move around through the city pretty efficiently if you know the streets. And, you know, the biggest issue I've got is just how do you move people in general when you when you plug up the arteries and deliberately introduce congestion? You make it worse for everybody. All right. That's City Councillor Stephen Holliday responding to City Councillor Mike Cole on the Kelly Contreras show earlier today. And because the only thing better than two city councillors is three, let's welcome in City Councillor Denzel Minnan Wong, who joins the debate now uh, <laughs> here on Global News Radio. Councillor, how are you this afternoon? I'm not bad. Thanks very much. All right. Break this tie for us. Uh, what do you think? Where do you stand on bike lanes on Young Street? Oh, it's, it's you know, really a bad decision. Um, I think Kelly got it right. Um, 
we should be, I mean, there are places for bike lanes and there are places not for bike lanes. Um, I think that if you're going to put bike lanes on Young Street, they should go on the side streets. That's Duplex and Jedburg. Um, you know, the idea right now is is to, you know, to put these, I mean, Councillor Cole just said it plainly, um, or maybe not so plainly, but he wants to create more congestion in the city. I don't know anyone who wants to create more congestion in the city. That's what these bike lanes <clears throat> will do. They'll take out a, they'll take out a lane of traffic along along Young Street there you have no parking in the a.m. and p.m. rush hours you do that so you can move traffic efficiently in and out of the downtown core for commuters that's why it's there now we're actually going to put something in permanently it simply doesn't make sense only you you only do it if you want to increase congestion and uh so that's it, it i i Last time I checked, the voters didn't elect me or any member of council to increase congestion. That's what these ideas do. All right. You know, the uh, pandemic, of course, has given us all a chance to uh, pause and rethink a, a few things. And one of the things maybe we need to rethink is uh, downtown. And is it going to look the same uh, moving forward? And is that maybe the discussion council uh, should have? Because, uh, you know, we do see things like curb lane patios right now because of the pandemic and uh, the fact that there is less traffic and congestion downtown right now because people just aren't going uh, back and forth, to and fro, uh, as much, and and who knows what the the future post pandemic uh, pandemic is going to look like. Is that maybe the conversation we need to be having? Do you think? Well, I think the left are using are, are using the pandemic as a Trojan horse to move their socialist agenda forward, which I don't agree with. Um, I don't think anyone really knows exactly what's going to happen when we come out of COVID, and you know what type of behavioral changes that are going to be made. Um, you know, I, I, you know, they're saying that people aren't going downtown and they're working at, at home more. I think they're shopping at home more too. So maybe they're just generally shopping online more. I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but that's what I, that's what I read in the papers. But it doesn't say that you know cyclists or drivers are any different. I think they're all doing that. I, you know, I don't think there are as many cyclists out there right now, and I don't think there are as many drivers. But we just don't have enough data. The thing that I object to is is claiming that these these new measures are temporary and approving them through council when they they likely will be made permanent and it'll just be a it'll it'll just go go through council as it's already in so we might as well keep them there and then when we get back to normal the congestion that we all suffered through pre-covid will be even worse yeah, because here's the problem is, you're right, we don't maybe have enough data, but we also don't have enough blacktop. We don't have enough uh, asphalt in roadway here because when you erect these uh, cyclist lanes, particularly these ones that are partitioned or pardoned off, that is taking away space, uh, roadway. And uh, again, is this something that we need to be thinking about right now, what the downtown and the city of the future needs to look like? You know, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I put I put in an approved uh, move to the first cycle, cycling uh, uh, infrastructure network in the downtown core, but it made sense in that circumstance, and it, it wasn't meant to conflict with um, with motorists. It seems to me that this many on many on this council, and this council, they like to approve uh, cycling lanes that actually conflict with uh, major arterial roadways that are used by cars going in and out of the city. They want to do that. They want to make congestion worse. They are poking an eye in the motorists around the city and trying to trying to deliberately slow them down. And, they, you know, quite frankly, motorists are not, you know, motorists deserve 
to use these roads just as much as anyone else. And, and this city should not be making it more difficult for, car, for cars to go around the city. Joined on the line by City Councilor Denzel Minnan-Wong. Since we are talking about uh, the roadways and uh, transportation, also wanted to get your thoughts this afternoon, Councillor, on this new staff report that is uh, recommending that the city spend nearly $40 million on new smart traffic technology to respond to what they're calling a drastic shift in the commuting patterns uh, since COVID-19 and the pandemic. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, I, I mean, the report just came out today, so I haven't had a chance to read, it th- read through it. I don't know how it relates specifically to spending this money related to COVID. But what I can tell you is that, that um, the city has been in, in the process of changing many of our, our uh, traffic signals along arterial corridors to make traffic run more smoothly. And, th- and th- that involves uh, greater coordination of signalized intersections where we know what traffic is coming uh, along the road and also through crisscrossing intersections so we can time the, the, the signalized intersection so the cars can move more efficiently. The example that I'll use, and we've already done it, is on a, a street like Richmond Street. So you, if you drive along Richmond Street, you know, you know what people hate? Hitting every single red. Doesn't that drive people crazy? Yep. We've <laughs> <laughs> been that there. Does. And, and so what, what we did was we actually looked at how fast the cars were going and what the, what was happening within the traffic patterns, and we timed we retimed the lights to the to uh, the proper uh, the, the the proper rate and and adjusted it to the speed limits. And now you can um, drive through on Richmond Street and not hit a red. And so this initiative is to ha- is to have smart technology be used, so traffic lights hopefully can talk to each other, and you can time them. So people can, uh, you know, not be stuck in in so much congestion and gridlock and actually move through traffic more efficiently. Yeah, is this really just kind of good thinking and part, again, of a uh, smart downtown or downtown of the future where we've got smart traffic lights that can adjust to uh, conditions? And if these traffic lights can sense that there's no traffic coming east-west but north-south is all backed up, uh, I mean, yeah, let's get the technology in there and use it because it's just good for everyone. We've been talking about it for a number of years, um, you know, six or seven years we've been talking about it. We've been implementing it on a number of, our, of arterial roads, and hopefully we can invest, make these proper investments so that, um, you know, w- we can have uh, more smoothly running traffic. All right. Uh, Councillor Denzel Minnan-Wong, appreciate uh, your time. Oh, by the way, since we've heard from three councillors this break, is, I don't know, Councillor Ford right there you can pass the phone to, or no, we've heard from <laughs> enough politicians. <laughs> Have a great day. You as well. Appreciate the time. Denzel Midden Wong with us. Just checking the rest of the schedule for today's program because that was three city councillors we heard from in one break. And we had the Premier Doug Ford in his press conference uh, last hour. Can I promise you no more politicians, at least until three o'clock? I can indeed do that. Yes. No more politicians. Actually, our wellness expert, Laura Sanctus, is on the line and she joins us as she does each and every Thursday. Right here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Laura, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon. Okay, Halloween. We know it's your favorite holiday. It's uh, looming. It's uh, lurking. Coming up, of course, uh, on Saturday. And uh, we're going to begin our discussion this week, our wellness discussion, by uh, talking about uh, Halloween, Halloween candy, and some ingredients that you might be surprised to find in Halloween candy. Yeah, I'm sure the state is every nutritionist nightmare because 
there's just so much information when it comes to Halloween candy and or misinformation. So I just want to take this opportunity to just inform people of whether you want to eat it or not, just make sure you know what you're getting into, especially when it comes to the Halloween candy. I mean, I know a lot of people around this time are going to be eating it and buying it. So I think there's just a few things when it comes to reading our labels and what we need to be mindful of um, if we do consume Halloween candy. So, I mean, Jeff, even before we start, what was your favorite Halloween candy? Ooh, that's a toughie. Uh, I can tell you what I did not like. That comes to a mind mind immediately, and it was those styrofoam uh, ice cream cones. You know oh, those yeah. ones, the yeah, but, but like the little mini ice cream cones, and it looked like ice cream, but it was you were basically eating styrofoam. It felt yeah. like. But like, probably my favorite would have to be uh, like Kit Kat or Coffee Crisp, the little mini bar. Me too. Totally, totally about the chocolate. Um, and I found some interesting stats that actually $2.7 billion of candy sales is projected each year just for Halloween candy. So I thought that was pretty crazy. And 90 million pounds of chocolate is consumed for Halloween, Halloween candy. So okay, that's, a, I'm guessing, a, a lot of sugar. And I don't think we would be surprised to hear that that's in our Halloween uh, candy. But should we be uh, aware or wary of that? A hundred percent. So... Another stat from the University of Alabama found that a U.S. child collects between 3,500 to 7,000 calories on Halloween night just by eating Halloween candy. 35 to 7,000 extra calories that night. 7,000. That's right. By oh. eating Halloween candy. Okay, those kids did not live by the rules I had to on Halloween because I remember we'd get back and it's like, okay, you can have one thing out of the treat bag. Yeah. <laughs> Take it away. So, yeah. What are the biggest threats or what are the ingredients that we need to be aware of or what should we be, be surprised about when looking, you know, when reading the labels for the Halloween candy? One of the biggest ones is high fructose corn syrup. So it's a genetically modified sugar. And really what it does is it, is it turns uh, into fat. It turns body fat, um, it stores body fat, I should say, in your body. And it's full of sugar and toxins. So it's the number one ingredient that's found in candy, which is high fructose corn syrup. Uh, it's got it's filled with GMOs, which kill off probiotics in your gut, and it actually depletes your immune system. So when we talk about the cold and flu coming up October, November, December, we really want to stay away from any ingredients uh, or foods that have high fructose corn syrup because that's the number one and the biggest threat that you'll find in Halloween candy in terms of ingredients. So again, and we always stress this and talk about this, natural occurring sugars are obviously okay and the best for us and what you should go for, but be wary of that fructose. Be wary of the high fructose corn syrup. Um, and then the second one that I think a lot of people are surprised about when I tell them this is heavy metal. So there's mercury, lead, and arsenic. So there's a lot of Halloween candies that include these ingredients. And um, also if you look at a lot of the bright colors in the candies, they have the mercury, lead, and or arsenic, even lighter fluid preservatives, surprisingly. And the reason why they have this is because um, these different preservatives, well, they can last longer on the shelves. This candy can help sustain, I guess, shelf life. So that's why uh, there's mercury, lead, and or arsenic. So that's something that I found was very interesting, especially when it came to the lighter fluid as a preservative. So that's definitely not healthy for you. It's gonna throw off your hormones among a host of other things. So we really want to stay away from anything that has heavy metals. Okay, that may be the scariest thing I've heard this Halloween or any Halloween, quite, quite frankly. That there are lighter fluid properties in some candies? It just gets better and better. Yep, lighter fluid preservatives in some candies. Yep, I'm not kidding. Um, when I was doing my research and 
uh, following a lot of naturopathic doctors, they were saying to stay away from a lot of candies that have um, that are very bright in color because of that reason. Now, another reason is a lot of candies and chocolates also have the artificial colors, and we know this. I mean, Jeff, you were talking about that candy that was kind of spongy, but I think it would taste it or look like, um, did you say like an ice cream cone? So it probably had like some pink color on the cone and maybe some the brown for the base of the cone. So some type of fake colors or artificial colors. We see this a lot in Halloween candy. And the problem is, is these artificial food colorings are linked to ADD, ADHD, behavioral issues, and other sensitivities in the body. And there's lots of research and lots of studies that uh, cite that artificial colors in candy can link to these behavioral changes. So that's something where, and that's probably another reason why a lot of our parents would make sure uh, for Halloween that we would only have a few candies because we didn't want we don't want to increase inflammation and hypersensitivity to foods in the body. So that's another culprit. And then uh, I would also say the artificial sweeteners. So we spoke about high fructose corn syrup, which is one of them. But there's a host of artificial flavors, coloring, sweeteners that we need to avoid. But again, I always like to tell people to do your best research and take your health into your own hands. Um, if you want to have one or two and have a little bit of balance in terms of eating some candy, I mean, there's there's no harm in that. But if that's something that you're going to have every day till November, some candy every day, or just like overeat a bunch of candy on Halloween night, I really suggest to avoid that because there's a lot of uh, harmful effects, especially when it comes to reducing um, your immune system and increasing a lot of inflammation in the body. So those are just a few key things to look at when it comes to reading labels and consuming candy. Wow. Okay. If you're concerned that your kids are over-consuming when it comes to Halloween candy, just replay them the segment with Laura DeSanctis. It'll scare them straight. Trust me. Right? <laughs> yeah. Listen, Laura, we're about to run out of time, but before we go, uh, tell us about this uh, wellness series you've got going on right now on uh, Instagram. You've had some uh, great guests, some great speakers uh, with you yeah. on Instagram Live. For sure. So my Instagram line is all about how to boost your immunity naturally and holistically. And so each week there's a Q&A with a different uh, holistic nutritionist or wellness practitioner based in and around uh, Toronto and or Canada. And what we do is we discuss natural, holistic uh, ways, supplements, foods, and even lifestyle tips how to boost your immunity come the cold and flu season. So that's going live on my Instagram every Thursday uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern time on Go With Your Gut. All right, coming up tonight, another Thursday. Laura DeSanctis, appreciate it as always. Thanks so much. There goes our wellness expert, Laura DeSanctis. Again, find her on Instagram at Go With Your Gut. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.